This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome in Late Kick Extra on the air. It is Tuesday morning or afternoon or evening. You choose when you want to listen. I know it's most likely February 9th, judging by the data and the percentages. About 70 to 75% of you listen on the day of release. I'm Josh Pate. Again, this is LKE. First time I've used the acronym. You're used to the name of the pod by now. It's all mailbag. We do them Tuesday mornings, Thursday mornings. It's wall-to-wall college football and then maybe a little bit extra sprinkled in, but when I say a little bit extra, it's none of the stuff that you want to get away from. Trust me. So we don't mix that sort of extra in, but the fun extra, yeah, we'll mix it in. I mean, I got something about a movie this morning. I think pretty much all of you have seen it at this point. So I'll get to that question in a little while. Joshpate706 at gmail.com is where you can email questions to me or just comments in general. You can sign up for a one-on-one Zoom session if you're interested in getting into sports media. Been doing a lot of those this week. Now is the time. Get in on those You want to start a YouTube channel? Had someone want to start a channel about gardening the other day. I told you I had a real estate guy come to me. A gardener came to me. Whatever. The formula works across the board. And you can actually make money on that stuff. Like, you can monetize a YouTube channel. It's not luck. It's science. It's not luck anymore, guys. It's not organic anymore. So there's a way to go about that. So if you want to talk about that, hit me up, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Also, you can follow me on Twitter and DM me there at Late Kick Josh. We have got a loaded show this morning. I told you once we got into the off-season, which we don't say out loud here, but I told you once we got into that portion of the calendar, we were going to stretch these a little bit. And I don't know how long this is going to go this morning. We don't fortunately have a set time limit that we have to adhere to on these, but we got some good ones, and it's not true or false, yes or no, multiple choice. We're going to get pretty in-depth. And before we do that, remember, the drive to 2,000 five-star reviews continues. So uh, that's all that is. I mean, just give us five-star reviews, and we'll appreciate it kindly. There is one other thing that I need to address before we dive into the first question. A lot of you, dozens per week, hit me up about merch, T-shirts, whatever. Do you have them? The answer right now is no. Uh, the follow-up is they're coming. It's coming. And it's coming because you keep begging for it. Also, I want to do it, but here's the thing. Here's been the hang-up. Twofold. Number one's not really of anyone's concern. Number two has been, I don't want to do it in some generic fashion. I don't want to put stuff out there that goes through some generic third-party vendor and, you know, they rinse and repeat from 10,000 other brands that they're printing stuff for. When we do it, I want it to be unique. I want it to be ours. And I want it to be something that you're actually interested in purchasing. And so there's some pretty interesting design ideas. Some of you guys, in fact, a lot of you guys are way better at design than I am. We're using our in-house people. Uh, I can pretty much, our audience is big enough now that I can crowdsource anything that we want to do together. And so design is no different. I was talking to someone earlier today about upgrading the mics that we use for the podcast and in the studio for Late Cake. And uh, so, you know, design should be no different. If I ever want to tour Europe, I'll probably hit one of you up as my travel agent. So that's one of the many benefits that we have from a growing audience. And just hang tight with me. 
I will keep you updated. Most of you listen to pretty much every pod or watch every show, so I will keep you updated. And if you happen to not hear it on the podcast, somehow, I can promise you it'll be on there about 50 times. Just follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. I'll let you know something when I know something. In the meantime, let's dive into this morning's Late Kick Extra podcast. Slade leads us off. This is a good one. He says, I need a detailed and elaborated on top three things you hear from fans, announcers, or anyone else regarding college football that just makes your blood boil. Oh boy. Okay. I want to, so you, this is probably where you want to hit pause on the podcast because I know good and well, every one of you have an answer to this. What are the three things, at least three Slade wants that make you absolutely sick, make your blood boil. I came up with three so quick and then I came up with like 17. Slade wants three. I'm going to give him three. The first one is continuously blaming referees for everything. And I don't care if you point out a bad call. We all see bad calls. I think it's been a particularly brutal couple of years in the Southeastern Conference, uh, for example. There are some conferences where officials are known to throw holding flags more commonly than other uh, conferences are. But the one thing I can't stand is the inability, the complete inability for certain types, and I've got several of them that are close to me, so I will not go further in depth on that, but certain types who do not possess the ability to remember the calls that went their way or the no calls that they benefited from. I know that you don't believe this uh, because your team, uh, everyone's out to get. However, I'm telling you, it all evens out in the wash. Maybe not over the course of four quarters. I think Ohio State got royally screwed against Clemson in the semifinal game last year. So this is no solace to Buckeye fans that night in, where was that, the Fiesta Bowl. No, it didn't wash out that night. But over 100 games, it washes out. Again, I know you may not believe it, but I promise it happens. However, I do understand why you complain about it. Second thing on the list. This is in no particular order, by the way. I can make a case for all these being number one. Oh boy, this gets me. So you asked about fans, Slade. Now this is fans and media. Later in the year, I want you to think about something. All right, Slade, I, Slade's an LSU fan. I know who he pulls for. So let's say your LSU Tigers go into Texas last year. You remember this? This actually happened. You go into Texas, you beat the Longhorns. The, the media establishment that ranks teams in college football at that point in the year has Texas rated, what, top 10, top 15. And so it's billed as a top 10, top 15 matchup. You go in there, you win the game. Texas loses a few games after that. And retroactively at the end of the year, you're being told by Mr. Announcer on TV, well, that Texas win, what looked impressive early in the year, really that's not so impressive anymore. Because uh, Texas was overrated. And this hits on really two things. Calling a team overrated and then devaluing wins from earlier in the year. Number one, when's the last time you saw a team rank themselves? And I'll get to my point in a second in a roundabout way. Uh, for all these folks who throw around the claim of overrated, and folks on TV, folks in radio, folks in podcasting, on Twitter, who are in the media apparatus, who have votes in things like the AP poll, the audacity to call a team overrated. The team did not plaster number six on their helmet. They did not plaster number two next to their name on your graphics package. You did that. You're the ones who vote. Therefore, it's you who should be criticized. You can, Think about what a cushy life it must be. I get to rank a team. Then when they don't fulfill my expectation, I get to criticize them instead of looking in the mirror and calling myself an idiot for ranking them that high to begin with. Like, the team's going to be what it's going to be. 
The season's going to be what it's going to be. I'm out here giving my best guess via my AP poll ballot, but hey, I guess since I own the microphone or I own the print, then I can just, I can forget about criticizing myself and I can call the team overrated. It's the team, it's those 17 and 18 and 19 year old kids' fault. It's the coach's fault that I was wrong. It's not me being wrong. And then secondly, the same crowd, the exact same crew, likes to, late in the year, devalue wins. I cannot stand it. I, I really can't stand it. And here's the thing about it. It doesn't matter if you grab someone by the shoulders and just shake them violently until they're forced to look you in the eye. You cannot explain how irrational it is to devalue wins retroactively to someone who just doesn't get this. And maybe you, get, maybe someone out there listening to this thinks this way. I am telling you my philosophy. We can disagree. That's fine. I don't think it's the end of the world, contrary to what the TV tells you sometimes. You can disagree on things and remain cordial. We can even go to picnic together. But think about what you're suggesting to me. You're suggesting that I should watch a team play another team early in the year and think it's a big game. But then once Team A, let's say LSU, beats Texas, and then Texas goes on to lose a few more games later in the year, I'm going to look back and I'm not going to give LSU as much credit two months later as I gave them that night. So mind you, nothing's changed about that game. It happened in week two and then week two is in the past and nothing's changed. But then I watched Texas more and I don't think they're as good as I thought they were. And the ranking next to their name is not as high as it was in week two. Therefore, I'm going to retroactively devalue that win for LSU. Now, last year, it didn't matter. LSU went undefeated. They didn't need any help, but it could have mattered. And the committee talks about this sometimes. Media types talk about this sometimes. Here's my question. How do you know that Texas wasn't impacted by playing LSU and getting beat by LSU? I'll give you another even better example. Back in the 2017 season, Alabama opens against Florida State in Atlanta. I'm standing on the field the last five or six minutes of the game. Alabama's up comfortably. This was a number three versus number two, I think, to open the season. Okay, so... Think about this. Alabama's going to get a win over a top five team. They hit DeAndre Francois at the very end of the game, quarterback for Florida State, knock him out for the year. Florida State season goes off the rails. And so Alabama goes from in week one being told they just beat a top five team to by the end of the year, the same folks are telling you not only did Alabama not have a win over a top five opponent, they didn't even have a win over a ranked opponent in week one. Now you tell me where that makes sense. Because the entire reason the season goes off the rails is because you knocked the quarterback out and derailed the season for Florida State. That's all part of having played Alabama. And so my point there is, my philosophy is define the value of a win and then freeze it in time and move on. And if the team ends up losing four games, so be it. They didn't have those four losses on the resume when they played you. And hey, might I suggest when they played you with a goose egg in the loss column, they may have been a little more fired up than the product they were putting on the field later in the year. So a million of these factors go into play that should be taken into account. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes we have this lazy, well, it's just an eight and four team you beat. Well, you don't have any top 10 wins. Well, no, Hawk, if you beat a team, it's very unlikely they stay in the top 10. So is this is this hard for you guys? Like I'm asking you, because most of the time you and I don't argue about this, but I do get knocked down drag out arguments sometimes with some other folks I know who just, they can't grasp this stuff. It's like you're playing robots every week and the robot, you know, since it's impossible for the robot to malfunction and we see a lesser version of it later in the year than we thought, oh, the robot just wasn't as powerful as we thought it was. 
These are football teams with human beings playing. Things change during the course of a year. You may face a different product entirely in week two than I face in week nine, and we may play the same team, at least on paper. So yeah, you you can say I get a little worked up about that stuff. I'll tell you, honorable mention was questioning play calling. I've gone off on this stuff before. Questioning play calling is, it's really absurd. It's absurd because you don't know, and I can guarantee you no matter who is in this listening audience right now, you don't know. I don't care if you coach the Minnesota Vikings for 30 years. If you're watching the Ole Miss Rebels on Saturday, you do not know enough to question a play call, and I'm going to tell you why you don't. And this is a 30-year NFL veteran, okay? So so certainly, I'm including you and I in this category of not being able to, or not qualifying, rather, to question play calling. You can't know what you can't know. You can't know what, first off, you can't even know what the play call was. Let's just start there. Secondly, after you can't know what the play call was, you don't know if a quarterback checked out of or audible to a different play at the line that wasn't initially called. Step three, you don't know what the game plan is. I got a buddy who questions, he texts me constantly during Tennessee games. He's a big Tennessee fan and questions play calling. And I'll ask him, hey, what was the play call? And and he'll tell me, well, QB draw. And I can assure you, I've got a couple of coaches play sheets in a box in my room. And I've got the full play call sheets for, you know, I got one I showed you from a national championship game. Let me tell you what's not on there. There are, there are 180 plays on that play sheet. None of them say QB draw. Not a single one. I know that shocks you. But there's not a single play that says QB draw. I mean, I mean, this dude who is going to listen to this can't even tell me the anatomy of a basic play call. Everything that goes into a play call has taken, in some cases, months to construct. I mean, you've got an entire blocking scheme. You've got a formation. You've got checks off the formation. In a lot of cases, you have option route trees where a receiver doesn't even know what he's about to do once the ball snapped. You're reading defense. How in the world are you about to sit there in your recliner in Murfreesboro, Tennessee and tell me, I know what that play call was. Now, the only play call Murfreesboro Mitch is really going to be able to tell me right off the top of his head is the victory formation. And I don't mean to take a shot below the belt here, but Murfreesboro Mitch has not seen many a victory formation as of late for the volunteers. Now, hopefully that changes. But I get back to my point here. The questioning of the play calling, after all I've just said, here's the other thing you don't know. Okay, You, if you're a normal person, you've worked on a delivery truck from 9 to 5 all week, or you've worked in an accounting firm all week from 9 to 5, and you've probably spent about, oh, I don't know, three, four, five hours total on your team that week. You watch them on Saturdays, you check the message boards, you read the injury reports during the week. You have got coaching staffs full of lifelong football types who are spending 100 to 120 hours per week with the sole focus of preparing for a team. They know that team better than you know your own children in many cases. They know the opposition. They've had an entire week in the spring to prep for that team. They have another week normally in camp leading up to the regular season where they excuse me, hiccup, where they dedicate it to that opposing team when they're eventually going to play him. And then obviously the week of the game leading up, they're focused on that opponent. They know personnel, they know sets, they know where we want you and where you want us, and we know our most favorable matchups. All that stuff is going into really a lot more of the data and analytics behind a play call than the gut feel. Like you ever notice how quickly the eyeballs, if you're watching a play caller, how quickly those eyeballs go back down to the sheet It's not like a movie where a guy stands there with his hands on his hips and there's a a soft audio bed in the background. And even though the play clock's supposed to be running, it takes like 58 seconds between snaps and you just look off into the distance 
and it just hits you what play to call. Well, Hollywood's really good at that. Hollywood's never won a national championship because that's not the way real football works. It is a lot more about predetermining what we're going to go with based on what they show us during the week. That is calling a game. Some are better at it than others. But what I'm telling you is I would be willing to, I'd be willing to bet money, at least, that everyone who I'm watching on Saturdays is better than you and I at it. That's what I'm willing to bet. So those are four things, and we've taken up a lot of time here, obviously. Those are four things that really, um, they just, they, they get me. They get me sometimes. Let me just leave it at that. David's next up. I'm disappointed to see my rival sign the highest ranked recruiting class in history while we at Auburn are signing three stars. This is understandable with the recent coaching staff and turnover, but Brian Harson seems confident he can succeed with these players. We've all seen underrated athletes develop into stars, but what about a whole class? How much stock can I put into Harson's insistence that he can win with these players? I'm skeptical, but I want to believe. Well, David, he's not beating Alabama with those players. Um, I don't care how confident he is. I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. I think you and I, well, David, I think you know because of the way you phrased the question. I think most of the Auburn folks I've spoken to, I grew up very close to Auburn, got dozens and dozens of Auburn folks I talk to all the time. I've gotten a sense that you guys are pretty realistic about this. I didn't talk to very many. In fact, I now that I think about it, I didn't talk to a single person who was over the moon, ecstatic, or even pretending to be about Auburn signing class. Now, you, some of you are out still on Brian Harson. Some of you are on the fence about him. Some of you are bought in because that's just what you do with every new coach, and I got no problem with that. I'd be the same way. But a lot of you are hopeful that maybe we hired the right football mind, and we didn't win on the press conference, for example. You know, it wasn't plastered all over the place. Ooh, fireworks, man. Auburn's about to, Auburn's about to take over everything. Well, it wasn't that, but not every great hire is memorable on press conference day. I don't remember, all, I'll be honest with you, I don't remember a whole lot about Dabo Swinney's introductory press conference. I I know where he is every year come college playoff time, though. I can tell you that. So I think you guys are hopeful that you hired the right football guy. Pat Dye, anyone remember where he came from? He didn't come from Texas. He didn't come from the NFL. He came from Wyoming. So it can work out. And famously, Nick Saban, Urban Meyer, they've come from not being part of the South to dominating the South. And so that's you hope you've caught lightning in a bottle there. But David, you're right in being skeptical about this. And you're not judging Brian Harson, of course, on this recruiting class. But man, like you can out scheme folks every now and then. You may even be able to do it semi-regularly. But what you are not going to do in what I think is the hardest job in America, pound for pound, when it comes to expectation and challenge blended together, you are not going to play LSU, Texas A&M, Georgia, and Alabama every year as a third of your schedule, only program in America that has to go through that, and consistently take the field against those four teams every year with the second best roster, in some cases by a wide margin, and just count on out-scheming folks. Because here's the downside. Uh, the one downside is you're outmatched talent-wise. Number two, Jimbo Fisher is not some pushover as a game day coach. Nick Saban, Kirby Smart, Ed Orgeron hopefully has hired the right staff there. It's not like, well, these are a bunch of lumbering ogres. They just happen to have a bunch of talent, but don't worry. I mean, they'll be over there like Red Bayou in, um, in Waterboy, and as long as he doesn't have my magic green notebook, we can run circles around him. That's not the way this is going to work. They got to get really good players. They got to prove they can do it, and that was where that's where yours truly is in the remains-to-be-seen camp on Brian Harson and Auburn. Jeer is next up. He says, hello, Mr. Payton. My buddies and I have been talking about coaches and what makes a good coaching staff along with nature. I said that I prefer a coach 
who can establish culture and hire the right guys for his staff. Some of my buddies want the hotshot coordinator who can put up points like Lane Kiffin. In your eyes, how does a coach establish culture in his program? And would you prefer a Sweeney type or a Kiffin type? Thank you for your time. You give me the Dabo Sweeney type a hundred times out of a hundred. Today, more so than ever. I want a guy who I have seen lead other individuals. And I want a guy who I've seen do it consistently. Not just one year here or there. I want a guy who I've seen do it consistently. And to be honest with you, more and more, I talked about this on Late Kick Live last week, I think it was. Think about this, guys. With with the way that things are trending in college football, I'm a believer that more so now than ever, and it will only continue to proliferate more and more into college football, more so now than ever and in the future, you're going to have a landscape in college football that is ripe for CEO-type head coaches to rise not from being an offensive specialist or being a defensive specialist, but maybe... Maybe you're a player personnel specialist. Maybe you are a special teams coach, but you have leadership qualities and you understand intricately how to build and maintain and run an organization. Those kinds of folks are who are going to elevate. Steve Sarkeesian just got hired at Texas, for example. Sark is an offensive mastermind. He's as good as I've ever seen with quarterbacks and with game day play calling, with installing an offense and running it seamlessly. I've never seen an offense run like Alabama's this year. What he is being asked to do at Texas, his day-to-day responsibilities, only about 25% of those will have anything to do with offense. That leaves three quarters of his job that is more administrative in nature. And you're dealing with people and you're having to build a recruiting operation and you're having to build your player personnel department. You're having to manage dozens and dozens and dozens of people. All the while, you're also having to maintain the look outwardly of what the Texas head coach is supposed to be. You got to keep up your appearances. You got to do this, you got to do that. And you got to maintain a razor sharp focus because every day, every eyeball is on you. You can't trip. You can't afford to do it. And so I want a guy who is good in that role. If I get a guy who's good in that role, Dabo Swinney is the name you mentioned. So I'll bring him up. Dabo Swinney's had no problem hiring and keeping elite coordinators. Brent Venables is at Clemson right now. Dabo Swinney doesn't need to be an offensive specialist. Dabo Swinney has had guys like Tony Elliott there. He's had guys like Jeff Scott in the past. He doesn't need to be an offensive specialist. He needs to be a football specialist. He needs to be a leadership specialist. You give me the culture guy, the culture guys will be able to attract the coaching talent. I don't worry about that. Conversely, what I do worry about is a guy who is known as being a hotshot coordinator or being you know, a hotshot play caller, but then you put him in charge of running something and he has no clue how to do it. That would concern me. So give me the culture guy, Jir, 10 times out of 10. Let's go to Sean's question. This is a good one. He said, this may be more for Steve Wilfong, but anyway, here's my question. Are certain positions more difficult to accurately scout and evaluate? For example, are there any positions that have a higher rate of producing busts from their four and five star status? I have a theory that star ratings for quarterbacks are more hit and miss than other positions, but that may just be anecdotal evidence as Notre Dame has had Chris and Kyle and Wimbush never live up to the hype. Now, I was just talking about this with, it may have been Wolfong actually the other day. I think this has changed even in the last 15 years. So I think the answer to your question, Sean, used to be overwhelmingly quarterback, would be the hardest to evaluate. And especially everyone talks about the college to NFL jump. Well, imagine being one of our scouts, being one of our evaluators and having to judge a guy coming from high school to college 
even if you played high-level football in high school, which some of these guys don't. Uh, so I think that in 2002, in 1996, in 1984, th- this was such an inexact science. And I'm not calling it exact today, but I want you to think about what we have today. We have a specialized sporting society, for the better or for the worse. And especially if you're, if you're looking for your kid to play quarterback down the road, I'm not going to fault you. I'm not going to fault you whatever you do as a parent because I'm not one, so I'm not going to criticize parenting. But if you're a parent and you got a kid who you legitimately think can be a big-time quarterback prospect, I don't care if you're pulling him off the bowling team and having him specialize at quarterback, especially if he wants to do it. But here's what happens. In ninth grade, I mean, I was looking at one of the charts for the uh, an opening event that's in Atlanta uh, about a couple of months from now. you got quarterbacks from the class of 2024 who are going to be at that event. You know what they are right now? Freshmen. They're freshmen. So they're 14 years old, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. You're in some cases having five years of eyeballs on these kids and not watching their middle school film. You could have access to that if you wanted. I don't know why you would. But even even beyond having access to their high school film, you're essentially getting them in like 12 NFL combines for your purposes. You're bringing them into a controlled environment where you set the matchups, you dictate everything about the structure, and you get to watch them do whichever drills you want. You get to watch them make the throws you want. You get to put them through any kind of mental task and task that you want to. You get them one-on-one in those what I call neck-up evaluations where you you see, how do they shake your hand? Do they look you in the eyes? What are they doing when you tell them lights out at 9.30 tonight? Do you have trouble with any of them? Just all these little things that you never would have been able to gauge about a guy before. But I think just the camp reps alone are invaluable. So whereas it was a total guess in 1996, now, I don't know if you've paid a whole lot of attention. I mean, Sean, I know you mentioned some names here. But see, I never I never expected Gunnar Kyle to be a superstar, Gunnar Kiel. I never expected Brandon Wimbush to be a superstar. I expected them to be good, solid quarterbacks. And you also got to take into account the system that they're going into, i.e., if I put Brandon Wimbush at Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley, would he have had the exact same stats? I don't know about that. So style has a lot to do with it. Obviously, program you go to has a lot to do with it. But, Sean, I think the quarterback position right now is as thoroughly and well-evaluated as it has been at any point in the history of college football scouting. And it used to be that the guys would always tell you running back's the easiest to scout and evaluate. I mean, we can tell pretty plainly who's going to translate from high school to college. And if they don't, it won't be because we missed on the physical eval. It'll be because they had character concerns that ultimately you know, kept them from achieving their maximum physical potential. And that's not something we can put in a star rating. Well, now the quarterback position, there's just not a lot of misses there anymore. It's not 100%. And a lot of times, again, like I just said, guys may go to the college level and screw it up themselves with stuff off the field that has nothing to do with what your evaluation on them would have been. But from a pure player evaluation and skill and talent standpoint, I don't think we're missing very much anymore. And I listen in on those calls and I hear how thorough and in-depth this goes. And in a lot of cases, by the time, you know, by the time we're evaluating Quinn Ewers, for example, who's the number one quarterback in next year's class, he's already committed to Ohio State. Big question among Texas fans. Can we get him back? Can we get him back? Listen, by the time Quinn Ewers plays at Ohio State, you will have seen six years of him. Think about that. As a by the time he's a freshman in college, our evaluators will have watched him for five and six years. And so they just they've got everything they need. Or let's roll on. Dylan here had a, one of those good old-fashioned hypotheticals. 
is a Texas A&M win over Bama, a Penn State win over Ohio State, and a North Carolina win over Clemson all in the same year, enough to upend the college football playoff landscape. What I mean by that is, is three games enough to change not just the season, but send ripple effects across the landscape in ways we have no idea of guessing. Well, I certainly suppose it would send ripple effects across the landscape if you simultaneously knocked out the three big boys at the table. Oklahoma would have a beef with that, but OU, I guess, is the only they're the only perennial playoff team left standing here. Maybe Georgia is in. I guess it's Georgia A and M or Florida A and M and Atlanta. But so if Bama's knocked out, if Ohio State's knocked out, if Clemson's knocked out then yeah, that'd be a really big deal. And a lot of you would hold ticker tape parades on street corners in every town in America. I mean, I wouldn't blame you. I understand what you guys are rooting for. When you say upend the college football playoff landscape, Dylan, I don't think it would upend it in in the sense that it would change anything. I think that it would upend it in a sense that you would have maybe some topsoil turned over and you got a chance for some fresh blood to get a, their first crack at the playoff. You certainly would have that. And maybe it would be good for the sport. Maybe it would be you know neutral for the sport. But yeah, I think it would be a really big deal. And listen, if this is ever going to happen, uh, this is the year, this is your best shot, let me put it that way, at having it happen. Because when you look at Ohio State, they're still going to be my favorite in the Big Ten. But, I mean, they're replacing quarterback. Clemson, going to be my overwhelming favorite in the ACC. They got a new quarterback. Bama, ditto, SEC, they got a new quarterback. And so there are a lot of places where your perennial favorite has got a lot of churn going on. And you got a place, conversely, like North Carolina, where you're bringing Sam Howell back. You're bringing a lot of pieces back. So maybe, you know, maybe. it's If you believe in miracles, then you got to believe in, like, Roger, Angels in the outfield, step up to the top step of the dugout, and just start waving those arms and wave them and wave them. And then you got to have Danny Glover come off from screen left and say, you got an angel with you right now, and he's going to help you. And to help you guys, it's not having Mel Clark throw a shutout in a playoff game. You're trying to look for help in the form of parody in college football. And so maybe this is the year it happens. But I'll tell you what we do have. We got a really good question here. I've been looking forward to this one. So Shelly, Shelly with an I, by the way, Shelly is asking about one of my favorite movies of all time, and it ties right into college football, and we are diving in headfirst right after this. Shelly, with just a, a heater up and in here at 98 miles an hour, Shelly says, I just finished watching Almost Famous. If you could take a trip with any college football coach very similar to William Miller's trip with Stillwater in the film, who would it be? First, most of you have seen the movie. Very briefly, for those of you who haven't, this is one of the greatest movies in the history of American cinema. I don't know why I say American cinema. I've never watched a French film in my life. So let me just say, in the history of global cinema, there you go, if it's not a phrase before it is now, in the history of global movie making, Almost Famous is one of the best movies, point blank, in the history of mankind. It is right up there with your Shawshanks and your Jaws, uh, Field of Dreams, I've told you, is my favorite movie of all time, but it is up there. Forrest Gump's a big one of mine, former All-American at Alabama, by the way, so Roll Tide Forrest Gump. I am a huge fan of Almost Famous, and what happens, it's kind of loosely based on a true story about the director's former life when he was, you know, he looks 11 years old. Uh, he's certainly not 18, and it's back in the back in the 70s, and I can't remember the exact story, but Cameron Crowe directed the movie, and he goes on tour. You know, he gets sent out with Rolling Stone magazine to go on tour, and he's just, in the movie, it's a kid named William Miller, and he is touring with a fictitious 70s rock band called Stillwater, 
You know, they're supposed to be right in line with like Zeppelin and the Eagles. They're just one of the big 70s rock bands, but they're fictitious. Some really good original music in that uh, movie, by the way. Nancy Wilson, wife of Cameron Crowe, did the score for the movie. Can you tell I've listened to a few documentaries on this movie? So anyway, he just follows the band around. And he sees all these things that, you know, would be eye-opening for a 40-year-old man, much less a 15 or 16-year-old kid. And so Shelly's asking, well, who you want to do that with? Let's say you just have your little tape recorder and your pen and paper and you're following a coach around. How is this answer anything other than Ed Orgeron? I ask you. Who, who else? Whomst? Whomst else out there other than Ed Orgeron? Because I think a lot of folks would gravitate to Nick Saban. And maybe I'm a little bit jaded because I just got done spending a lot of time with Nick Saban this past week, which was a blast, by the way. If you didn't already check out the interview with Nick Saban, go check it out. It's on the YouTube channel. But listen, the thing about it is what Shelly's asking is, it's not who do you want to interview? It's who do you want to tail? Who do you want to shadow? Who do you want to follow around? And Nick Saban, you know, he'll probably pull in at 5 a.m. and pull out at 8 p.m., uh, you know, if he's got a shorter work day, of course. And I know what he's doing, is my point. He's walking to that Mercedes in the parking lot, and he's taking the same route home, and he's eating the same thing for dinner, and he's playing the same, you know, board game with his wife before he goes to bed, and then it's lights out at the same time, and it's going to be rinse and repeat for the next 360 of 365 days. But with Ed Orgeron, I don't even know if that guy's going home and going to sleep at night. I don't know where I'm ending up. I have no clue. And I feel like each time about 6 p.m. when he walks out of the LSU football complex down there, we're really rolling the dice on life. I don't know where we're going to end up. And it's kind of like, you know, in the movie, you, you end up over at a frat party and the lead guitar player is up on top of the roof yelling on drugs, considerable amounts of acid. I'm a golden god. How did, how did William Miller know he was going to be there four hours earlier? Well, I could end up in a very similar situation with Ed Orgeron. I could be watching film. I could be out in a swamp somewhere. I could be down the road in New Orleans. I don't know where I'm going to be. But the point is, I think it would be a lot better documentary. It would be a lot better to chronicle a night or several nights with Ed Orgeron. And it would be more interesting for the mass audience than the more sedentary, sedimentary, whatever the word is. They screwed it up in the office. I screwed it up here. Lifestyle that most head coaches live during the season. Uh, close second, I think this one may surprise you, was Mac Brown. Because I think Mac Brown's probably living a pretty underrated, interesting life too. Mac Brown's got, you know, he is he's like your fun uncle and a drill sergeant all at the same time. Mac Brown, I told one of you on Twitter today, you may start your morning eating at Cracker Barrel and then go cut a kid for disciplinary reasons by noon and then hop on a booster's private plane and fly to his cabin in the Smoky Mountains to eat dinner. It's You just never know what it's going to be with Mac Brown. But he lives that sort of football lifer, back-slapping with boosters kind of lifestyle that would probably endear me to choose him if Ed Orgeron's not available. But Shelly, I got to go with Ed Orgeron as the answer for this question. I would be interested. For those of you out there who disagree and you got another idea, I would be very interested where you're going on that one. You get to, I think in the movie, he was with him for about two weeks. So you're shadowing a coach for two weeks and you're telling me that you're picking someone other than Orgeron. I don't know who it's going to be. I, it better You better come with something strong if you're going with two weeks shadowing someone who's not named Edward Orgeron. we probably end up going to see Coco as mom. I mean, wouldn't that be great? It's good to see Coco get some love finally from the national media last year. Good question though, Shelly. All right, let's roll on. Uh, I did not get a name on this one, but I do have the question. Why are people so down on the Pac-12 relative to the Big 12? If you removed Oklahoma from the Big 12, the rest of the product would look basically the same with maybe even more parity in the Pac-12. 
I acknowledge on the administrative side of things, the Pac-12 has struggled. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are um, you can't remove Oklahoma. That You can't have that. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, whether it's fair or not, I think a lot of people from the national perspective are gauging the strength of a conference by the top. Do you have a playoff contender? And the fact of the matter is Oklahoma is that and has been that for several years now in the Big 12, and there has not been that, by and large, in the Pac-12. And it was Washington when it did happen most recently, and that was in 2016. So is USC there? No, they're not. Is Oregon there? No, they haven't been. They've been good, been a good, solid program, have not been a playoff contender. And so I think that's the reason. Because you are right. I mean, if I were to take Oklahoma out of there, then yeah, they'd, they'd be comparable. But, you know, Oklahoma is there. And so as far as that end of the argument is concerned, that's that. The second part you put on this question, I don't think can be ignored either. You said, I acknowledge on the administrative side of things, the Pac-12 has struggled. Well, here's the problem. Yes, you're right, but it hasn't been an internal struggle. It's been a very public struggle, completely botching the TV deal. I mean, I don't know if you guys who live in St. Louis or Virginia Beach or Tallahassee, Florida, I don't know if you realize the true state of affairs. There are a lot of people who live on the West Coast who cannot watch Pac-12 football games because they don't have the Pac-12 network. Can you imagine living in Boaz, Alabama or Valdosta, Georgia? and not being able to watch the SEC network, if you, have, if you have paid for normal cable or satellite packages, not being able to watch the SEC network in Bossier City, Louisiana. Uh, that sounds like you might as well be on Mars. But that's the reality that a lot of people live on the West Coast. And so that's been publicized now. And Larry Scott, even though his conference was a disaster, was the highest paid conference commissioner in the country last year and laid off all the Pac-12 network staff as executives got raises. It was just every, every angle of mess that you could imagine. I'm pulling for him. Make no mistake about it. I'm pulling for him. I may be critical, but I'm only critical when it's fair because I badly want a viable West Coast product. I mean, I badly want it because it's it's not good for anyone in my line of work when you've got an entire portion of the country where the lights are flickering on and off. No, no, we want a bright, white-hot spotlight on the West Coast. So I, I'm, I'm pulling for you guys. I'm pulling for you guys. I'm just, you know, I can buy Oregon. I could even be sold on USC, but I can't. It's very hard for me to be sold on the conference overall. And you, gotta, you either got to have good, solid conference strength where you got several top 20 caliber programs, or you better get an alpha on the block out there. It, whether it's Oregon or USC or anyone, I don't care who it is, you better get a perennial playoff contender or else this question is going to remain the same or answered the same at least every year. Eric is next. Eric says, last year you said, if it's not now, then when for Dan Mullen at Florida when it came to beating Georgia? Do you now feel that sentiment is the same with Georgia when it comes to winning a national title this upcoming season? No, I do not. And what Eric means by this is I was doing the Florida Mood Tracker going into the 2020 season, so last year, last season, and I said, well, I was really just kind of trying to echo the sentiment that I had heard from a whole lot of Florida fans. And you guys were saying, we've got the quarterback edge, and we've got a, at least a comparable enough talent roster. We think we have an edge on game day. We think we can outcoach Georgia. And so a lot of things have fallen in line to where we've got the more favorable schedule. They got to play Bama, whereas we don't. Ended up not mattering because LSU beat you. But you still beat Georgia. You still won the East. And so my, my point was basically, as Florida fans were saying, we better get it done this year. Because if we don't get it done this year with all the stars aligned, when are we ever going to get it done? Well, Eric's saying... Okay, now this year, 
Isn't that the way I should look at Georgia when it comes to winning a national title? No, Eric, the answer is no. And the main reason I say no is because what you have to have to compete for a national title, you've got to have a lot of things go your way. But you can have a lot of things go your way and go eight and four. You've got to have a lot of talent and then have a lot of things go your way. But talent is the starting point. Georgia's going to have an insanely talented team every year. Uh, to varying degrees, but they're going to have a very talented team every year, which means every year they start in that relatively small group of teams, whether it be four or whether it be 14, they're always going to be in that group that's technically capable of winning a national title at the beginning of the year. And the way to look at this is just you keep taking swings every year. You may think of yourself as blindfolded if you've ever taken swings at a pinata we used to do it in middle school all the time or elementary school. You just keep swinging and, and you got to be in the room where the pinata is to hit it. George is going to be in the room every year. You just keep swinging. This year, they probably got a better shot than most years they've had, uh, but you know, they'll have a shot next year and they'll have a shot the year after that. This is not a situation where maybe you look at Iowa State and Iowa State's got all these players coming back and you're thinking to yourself, if they're ever going to win, if they're ever going to go to the playoff at Iowa State, it's got to be this year because that's the reality at a program like Iowa State. You would have to build and build and build and build, hopefully towards that one year. Eric, I don't think that's the case at Georgia. I mean, they may have their best shot ever this year, but if they don't get it done this year, you know what price they're going to pay? They're going to start the season in the top 10 next year, and they're going to have probably the best roster in the East. They're going to be the favorite in the SEC East, and they'll probably end up you know, competing for a shot to go to Atlanta and play in the SEC title game again. And so Georgia's going to be there every year. No, I do not feel that that's the case at all with Georgia. Let's get a final question from Isaac here. Isaac says, why is viewership for college football struggling, especially the national title game? And is it a problem that we as college football fans should be worried about for the health of the sport? Isaac, I'm going to say something here. I'm not talking to you now. I'm just speaking in general. I have never walked into the kitchen at a five-star restaurant and started instructing the chef on how he needs to prepare his food. And the reason is because I have no clue how to cook, especially when compared to a five-star chef. So I'm just going to go to his restaurant. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to eat whatever he brings out. Well, honestly, he's not going to bring me anything. He's going to ask, what are you doing in a five-star restaurant? I'm going to say, touche. And then I'm going to go down the street to like Sizzler or something like that. However, let's just pretend like I am the kind that hangs out in five-star restaurants. I'd never go in the kitchen to school the guy he has forgotten more about cooking than I'll know in 10 lifetimes. I just want to I just want to warn you. There are a lot of folks who tell you about metrics and viewership numbers and ratings that have not the slightest clue what they're talking about. The the way that these numbers are garnered in today's media, today's fragmented digital media landscape, it is so ridiculously different than it was 15 20 years ago. 20 30 years ago, I mean, it was a Nielsen diary world, and it's the most inexact science in the history of the world. I cannot believe that television companies use Nielsen ratings to generate advertising price points. It just blows my mind. But if, And if those of you out there who don't know what that is, maybe some of you have gotten a diary in the mail. Nielsen is literally a company that sends a diary to you in the mail, and I think they pay you a little bit of money. It's always been illegal. If we get them in the mail, we can't, we can't use them. Uh, we can't fill out the diary and send it back in. Not everyone has always adhered to that, especially in the local radio industry, but I digress. Statute of limitations and whatnot. So you fill out the diary, and what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to be writing what you've watched every night. And then over the course of the ratings period, you finish filling it out, and then you send it back into Nielsen. 
Well, here's the problem. So I, I learned just the intricacies of how this works. I'll give you an example. I worked for the number three station in the number 124 market in the country in Columbus, Georgia. Channel 9, WTVM News Leader 9, and then to a lesser degree, WRBL, uh, Channel 3. Those were the established mainstays in that market for decades and decades, my whole lifetime. And then WLTZ was only a recent addition. It had been there less than 10 years when I was there. Here's what had happened. Not only would we get beaten in ratings, just more people were watching the established channels, but we would find that sometimes people would even watch our product but they had had WTVM Channel 9, News Leader 9 on your side. They had had it ingrained in their minds so long, they'd write WTVM in the ratings book even if they had watched us. So that's how inexact it used to be. Well, then digital metered markets come along where they're actually reading from your box via programs like Rentrack, for example, what you're actually watching. But every market's not a metered market. So think about that. That's when everyone's watching TV. Now I want you to imagine trying to measure how many people are watching a broadcast when 30% of them are not watching a traditional over-the-air TV anymore or over-the-top. And then imagine when that number goes to 50% and they're watching it on phones and tablets and devices. And then I want you to imagine there's a pandemic. And then I want you to imagine there's an election. And then I want you to imagine we play a season. What comparative analysis can you do, not you, Isaac, again, but to anyone in the room? I don't care if you've had 50 years in this business. Can you honestly, I've had these conversations, so this is rhetorical right now. I can tell you, no one has any comparative analysis for this. Election seasons suck for sports. A pandemic, you've only had one of them. Obviously, that sucked for sports. But, but I always know what's coming in an election season. I don't, I don't care how contentious it is. I don't think we'll ever have another non-contentious election season again, which sucks for us in general and for us in the sports media world. Here's what I want to do. What I want to do is I want things to return to normal in 2021, and I want us to have packed stadiums and not an election in sight this fall, and I want to see things play out, and then let's look at those numbers. And if those numbers are identical to this year's numbers across all platforms, then we can start talking about the health of the sport. But I think a lot, here's what I think, Isaac, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people have had an agenda that they want to push, as we all do from time to time. And there were a lot of low-hanging fruit anecdotal type examples to back it up this year. And so you had a blowout in a pandemic-ridden national championship game that delivered a very subpar national title rating. And everyone said, look, there's my evidence. Well, that's not evidence. That's not any more evidence than me knowing it's going to snow next Thursday because it's going to be 29 degrees for the high. Well, it can be cold and be bright and sunny. So I need more, in other words, than just the very, very limited sample size that we just got this year. So Isaac, my answer to you is no. Don't be worried about the long-term health of the sport. But if you are worried, Isaac, then here's what I would, I would suggest we all do this. I did a podcast today and we got into this. The nucleus of this sport, as long as the nucleus and the focus of college football remains on the regular season, instead of making the nucleus and the focus of the sport the playoff, college football will be fine. Right now, and I'm, not, I'm only going to broach this, I may go into it a little bit deeper later on. Right now, this is not a shot at any network. They're probably doing the same thing I'd do if I ran the company. But right now, you've got an entity in ESPN that bought the college football playoff contract a while back. And they paid over a billion dollars for it. They paid a lot of money for it. 
And so they are the hub, whether you like it or not, they are the central hub of college football. Every college football fan has to, some way or another, go through ESPN. You may claim you don't watch them. I can guarantee when games are on ESPN, you're at least watching the games. And some of you may watch their studio coverage. I don't have time to watch anything, but I know a lot of you have different viewership patterns than me. When the centralized hub of college football bought the college football playoff contract, it ensured that the entire marketing machine for that entity, and the entity being ESPN, was going to refocus its attention from promoting college football to promoting the college football playoff. And the problem is, in a lot of the American college football subconscious, the nucleus of college football was then taken and shifted from regular season to playoff. You're watching Toledo versus Kent State on a Tuesday night in early October. They're talking about the playoff. You're watching a a schedule reveal show in January. They're talking about the playoff. You're watching spring practice. They're talking about the playoff. That's the way it's going to be. And so, Isaac, you got to decide one of two things, man. And, Isaac, I'm using you as an example of a microcosm of everyone listening. We got to do one of two things. Either you can just buy that, and then you can take all the problems that come along with making the entire college football world revolve around the playoff, or you can push back against that notion and you can remember why you love the sport so much. The urgency and the uniqueness of the regular season, the tradition, the pageantry that is unique unto any other sport, both in America and globally, and you can put the premium on that. And if you do that, I can assure you, any given year, doesn't matter who's going to win the title, college football is healthy if the nucleus of the sport remains intact and that nucleus is the regular season. And that's the bottom line called Stone Cold Setso. All right, good podcast this morning. Went a solid 48 minutes. Nice, Jordan. Have fun editing that, my friend. Uh, remember, if you want to submit questions, joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. Follow me, even if you don't have a question, at LateKickJosh. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and leave us one of those good old five-star reviews. If you do not own an Apple product, it's okay. Many of our listeners have been stealing temporarily the phones of their loved ones and using their iPhone or their Mac or their iPad, whatever the case may be. Uh, We don't discriminate. We'll take all five-star reviews. And so thank you so much for that. Want to get to 2,000 sooner rather than later. And also make sure you are subscribed to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. There are changes coming. I know I mentioned the uh, merchandising change, but there are changes coming to the show. Uh, Some of them are starting this week. If everything goes right, you will not notice those changes, but there are some monumental changes coming to the show later this year. They're all going to be good, obviously, at least if I have anything to say about it. And so you'll like them, and they will be impossible not to see, and I'll let you know when they're coming. But it's going to be a summer thing. So got got a lot of changes. Got it, tiers of changes. Tier 1 changes coming this week and uh, tier, tier 9 changes coming in the summer. So looking forward to all that. Thank you so much for listening this morning. For Producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great rest of your day and God bless. <laughs>